I have three kids, you, you all know that, um, and all my kids are different. And uh, I have a middle child, my daughter, Allie. Some of you who know her know she's, she's extremely lovey. And I just got to tell you, that's, that's cool. She's the kind of girl who you don't have to do anything for her, and she'll come and give you a hug at night before bed, just saying, I love you, Mommy, and run over, and I love you, Daddy. I just drink that stuff up, you know? I don't have to pay her. I don't have to buy her jewelry. I don't have to do anything for her just to say, I love you. And uh, there's this game that we play every once in a while, and I don't even know how it started, but, but it started, and, and I like it, so it continues. But uh, um, the first time it happened, I walked by her room, and she was in her, on her bed, and, and she said, spontaneously, didn't pay her, no jewelry, I love you, Daddy. And I was just like, stop, look back in the door, I love you more. You know what she says? She says, I love you most. First time she did it, I'm like, Okay, I can't top that one. She says, it's a trump card, right? Most. You can't say mostest or mostestest or most infinity. The fact of the matter is, most is most. That means it's final. There's nothing greater. It's, it's superlative. That's what most means. It's such a, such a great word. It means there's nothing beyond it, uh, ultimate. And... Um, as God in his goodness and providence would have it, he used that word as part of a name for himself, most. And it's that word connected with another one that I want to explore this morning through the story of a, of a man who lived um, 2,500 years ago. The most high. Nothing beyond it, nothing higher than it, most high. And we're going to learn the power of that name through the story of the man who confessed that name and had to learn firsthand um, what it meant. And it's found in Daniel chapter 4. Six times the name Most High is found. What's remarkable about Daniel chapter 4 is that it's the story of one of the most powerful kings um, in ancient times. Some of you have probably heard the name Nebuchadnezzar before but arguably the most powerful emperor of the Babylonian Empire, you babble when you say Babylonian, um, empire um, ever. The kind of guy who didn't need to pass laws through parliament, didn't need um, congressional law to execute people. If he wanted it done, he could have it done. He simply said the order in it, and it was done. Um, Unilateral totalitarian power, Nebuchadnezzar. And the impression that we get from him both in history and in the Bible is that he was a man who thought he was the most, most wealthy, uh, most prominent, most important, and most importantly, most powerful. But the story of Daniel chapter 4 shows us, or should I say he teaches us through his own autobiography that he is not the most. Um, that there is somebody who is far above him, and that, of course, is, is the Most High God. Um, we're introduced to him as a man who is arrogant, a man who is full of himself, a man who is uh, um, king of his own hill, a person who, in a moment's notice, becomes furious and can eradicate people. That's, that, that's who he is. He's, he's full of himself. And uh, lest we judge him too harshly, let's just acknowledge that it's within the fallen, broken heart of every one of us to want to to apply that word most to ourselves. 
um, it's that natural inclina inclination towards uh, self-centeredness um, where we want to be the most important person in the room. And if you don't think that is in us, you know, just reflect on how you respond next time you look at a family picture and whose faces you look at the first. It's like you look 99.9% .9 of the time, it's going to be your face. And you're going to be analyzing that face going, oh, my arms are fat in that picture. My hair's out of place, and my teeth are yellow. Oh, my gosh, I'm so embarrassed. You didn't even notice everybody else in the picture. Oh, look, my Aunt Liz, she looks so wonderful. And Dave, he's lost weight. No, it's, you're looking at your face. That just substantiates the fact that we are inclined to look at ourselves first because we're tempted to want to be the most important person, even to ourselves. So this message of the Most High has something to tell or teach every one of us. All right? Daniel chapter 5. Now, two introductory remarks regarding the chapter that I find fascinating. One, before we look at his story, and the story revolves around a dream. Um, the dream is it, dream's interpretation and the dream's fulfillment. Um, but these two comments before um, that make this chapter unique. One is that it's the only chapter that I know of that is a confession of a pagan king's encounter with the living God. You'll notice it's an autobiography. This chapter, the rest of the chapters are written by the prophet Daniel, but this one is written by a pagan king, which makes it unique. And it's written not just to communicate something in Daniel's world, but to communicate to all the people the lesson that he learned in this chapter. King Nebuchadnezzar, verse 1, To all people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me, uh, to who the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. So he's just like, Daniel has taken this, this letter or whatever it was, communication that was meant to go to all the nations to explain the lesson that this king learned in relation to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, the content of this chapter is pretty humiliating, which is itself pretty remarkable. He's declaring for all to see and hear, this was my experience before the Most High. The second remarkable thing about this chapter, second comment, is, is that it's framed by worship. It begins and ends with a sense of praise. That is verse 3. He kind of launches into poetry. If you're looking at your Bible, you notice it's kind of set off like it's a poem. Well, it is. This is a poetic expression of praise. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. It says the same thing near the end of the chapter, verses 34 through 35. So the thing is packaged in this worship of Almighty God, of the Most High, of the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Yahweh. So this is an expression of worship that comes out of an experience. Two comments aside now, or just keep them in, in mind. So here's, here's the basics of, of the story. Let's, what is his story? What is he going to tell us and teach us? This pagan king who encountered the Most High God. Well, as I said, it, it surrounds a dream. So let me kind of summarize some of this. So Nebuchadnezzar's laying on his bed on his pillow with a little imagination goes to sleep, and all of a sudden has a vivid dream, a dream that's not like other dreams. Like, I don't know what you dream about, getting chased by donkeys or dogs or falling off a cliff, um, but there are dreams that we have all the time that you know aren't remarkable. Apparently, this one stood out in his mind as perhaps having divine significance. So he wakes up from his dream, probably alarmed, God's trying to say something to me, 
And so what does he do? He brings in all of his best guys, his uh, dream specialists, his uh, dream interpretive and specialists. It says he brings in his wise men and his magi. He brings in the philosophers and brings in his, his PhDs. And he's, he tells them the dream and says, what does it mean? Again, this is the most powerful guy on earth who can just like blow up people with simple wish. Um, they're like, we don't know what it means. So finally, King Nebuchadnezzar, he knows there's one guy, a Jewish guy, who has the divine inspiration to be able to interpret dreams he had back in chapter 2 of Daniel. Why he didn't call him first is a matter of speculation, but I suspect that he knew that the answer would be a negative one, so he didn't really want to hear it. But at the end of the day, he wanted to know, so he invites the prophet Daniel, a Jewish man who's second highest in command. Um, He has risen through the ranks because of God's favor and blessing. He calls him in and says, listen, here's my dream. Now, here's what the dream is. He said, in in my dream state, I I saw a tree, and the tree grew large and high up to the heavens. It it reached the heavens. It could be seen by everyone on earth. That's how prominent it was. And its leaves were beautiful, and it was fruitful. It was powerful, and all of the animals and birds uh, sought refuge under its shade and also in its provisions. That part of the dream was really cool big great tree but then the next part alarmed me and that is I saw this angelic watcher descend and it ordered that the tree be chopped down tree was chopped down and the in the in the the branches were stripped and the beautiful fruit and the leaves it was left with nothing the only thing left was a was a was a stump and a band was put around the stump and then one of those angelic watchers spoke and this is what that angelic watcher said The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end. Now, here's why the tree was cut down. That the living may know, the living meaning every tribe, tongue, and nation that he has written this letter to, may know that the Most High, nothing beyond it, rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. That's the purpose of the tree being chopped down. Now, that part that's underlined there, you're going to see repeated a couple of other times in the chapter as we proceed because it deals with the central purpose of this chapter, that the Most High rules. Rules. Now, to this, Daniel's now heard a dream. And uh, there must have been kind of an awkward pause because Daniel knew that the, 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 the interpretation of it was negative. It says that he was dismayed. And uh, shorthand, David, Daniel basically looks at Nebuchadnezzar and says, uh, it's not good. Prognosis is not good. Your dream uh, is not good. It is an inspired dream by the Lord. And that tree, Nebuchadnezzar, is you. You know, getting chopped down and stripped. And he tells of this interpretation in verse 24. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King. That you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you will be, with, um, be wet with dew of heaven. And seven periods times shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom will be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. From the time you know that heaven rules. 
And Daniel basically listens and says, you're the tree. You're mighty in power, prominent, the most powerful person on earth. Everybody sees you as the pinnacle of human power. And people find refuge under the provision of your protection and your rule. But that time is coming in which you are going to be stripped of power and dignity. And you're going to be made to live like a wild pig or a dog or some kind of a rodent. Out of this, this is pretty negative. Someone told that to you, it's like, really? (laughs) Going to be like wallowing around on the ground and uh, eating, you know, grass and who knows what, bugs. It'd be pretty, uh, pretty sobering. Daniel gives him some advice out of this. He says, listen, king, maybe if you, you know, you repent, then maybe the Lord will prolong your prosperity. Maybe Nebuchadnezzar listened. We don't know. But a 12-month gap goes by from the time of this dream and the interpretation of the dream. And we find him, in verse 29, walking on top of his palace. And this is what he says. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the, on the, uh, on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is this not Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power, as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it was spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know in your heart that the most high rules implied not you, the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will. That first part, you got to say, is pretty cocky. You know, back there, he's walking around on his palace, he's looking out, looking down on all the buildings and all of his power and contemplating the might of his army, and he's like, look at this Babylon, which I have built, you know, by my mighty power and for my majesty. It's, it's a cocky statement. He's the top of the world, the most powerful guy. But in his pride and in his arrogance, the Lord fulfills the dream, and it says there in that moment immediately, he was driven from among men. He was made to eat like a pig or a dog, and not just for a couple of days, but for a period of time so much that his hair grew long and matted like a mangy, long-haired dog, um, and his nails grew out like talons. You need to think about that. And just driven out, and it, I think it implies that he, he didn't have the capacity to communicate with anybody. Um, he was deranged. He was insane. He lost all ability to do logic and, and reason. Uh, he wouldn't have had right guard, so it would have been just a little bit difficult to be around the guy. He was an animal. In a moment's notice, God takes the most powerful man on earth and makes him into an animal. A wild beast. Absolutely humiliated. I don't know if there's anything worse. Maybe a worm. Now he's made to crawl around, grow long hair, and stink. Nobody wanted to be around him. It's a wonder they didn't assassinate him. So here you have the highest man going to the lowest place. And he's writing about this for all to listen to. But then there's this turning point. And by the way, just 
I, this kind of came to my mind yesterday, stupid, but kind of worked for me. Like saying things like, look what I have built by my mighty power for my majesty. And, you know, how would the Lord think or relate to that arrogant statement? And I think it was something like this. If you can imagine your hand having its own personality, able to talk to you, all right? Just go with me here. I know it's schizophrenic, but just go with me because maybe you'll remember it. All right, just imagine you decide you're going to build this, uh, this, this wonderful rock wall. And you spend all the time, you lay the foundation, and you mix the mortar, and you have all the perfect rocks, and everyone's perfectly fit. And you get to the end, and there's this beautiful rock wall. You're looking at it, and your hand rises up. It says to you, look at this mighty wall, which I have built by my mighty strength, for the glory of my majesty. Look at your hand there for a second and go, I don't know what you're talking about. You didn't decide the to build a wall, and you didn't create the blueprint for the wall, and, and who was it that actually moved you to grab the bricks, mix the mortar, and put up the, the wall? That's me. That's not you. I decided, not you. I orchestrated, not you. I'm the one who moved, not you. I'm the one who built, not you. I moved through you. You can see the complete and utter arrogance for some, a man to say, look what I've built by my mighty power. Nothing happens in the world that we exist in that God has not in some way, shape, or form ordained. So when you see it happen, when you see an empire like Babylon emerge in history or Rome or Greece, you got to remember that's part of a divine plan. It didn't just appear out of nowhere because some super smart and powerful guy came along and said, I'm going to build something great. A lot of people tried that. It didn't work. Now, this is all part of God's work. History is God's work. And that was an utterly arrogant statement. So at that moment, God, of course, reduces him down to a, an animal. But there's this, there's this change. And it's one of the most remarkable uh, changes, I think, in, in the whole book of Daniel, and maybe even in the scope of the Bible in terms of Someone so arrogant, so proud, so full of himself, so much an enemy of God. We read in verse 34 that this change happens. He says, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. This has got to imagine, you know, he's on all fours. He's just got probably a big old long duck dynasty beard. And, you know, just, and, and, and his reason returns to him. And he looks up. It's probably the first time he's actually looked up. Well, I know it's the first time in the book of Daniel. The rest of the time he's looking down and out. Oh, look how great I am. At this moment, he's on all fours and his reason returns and he looks up. And at that moment, he acknowledges, you're in control, not me. He's the hand saying, the head did this, not me. And there's this moment of contrition and humility, and it just kind of explodes forth in this kind of, of worship. He goes on to say, and I bless the Most High. He acknowledged his place in God's world, that God's in control, God's king, God's on the throne, not me. God moves things. God establishes things. God tears things down. God puts kings up. He removes kings. Blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. And he goes on to to give this poetry that talks about God's enduring reign and kingdom and so forth. 
That's a, that's a pure moment if you just pause. That's a pure moment of grace that just blows you away. I would have expected God to just smoke that dude. You know, arrogant, pagan. And instead, God returns his reason to him. You know, I mean, that's how. All God had to do is pull his sanity away for a little bit, and the guy couldn't, couldn't last. I mean, it just goes to show you even sanity is a gift of common grace. We're not in control always of our own saneness of mind. It's God can take it or he can give it. And God returned it. And then to give him the eyes to look upward and acknowledge and praise God for what he has done, for returning him. And then it goes farther than that. Not only is is he looking up and is he praising the Lord, but the last part of the story says that God actually restored his kingdom to him and his glory, even greater than it was before. At the same time that my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me, my counselors and my lords sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added. More greatness was added to me. I didn't deserve anything. But more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And it's not hard for him to do it. Notice his vocabulary. His vocabulary shows that he has a heart change. That is now he recognizes majesty and splendor are returned to me. It's as if God gave it back. He didn't establish it. He didn't make it happen by his mighty power. It was given back to him. And more greatness was added to me by somebody else, by the king of heaven. And I think that's what blew him away is he knew. By the way he acted in his arrogance, he was, he was utterly repulsive to God. But in that moment of complete brokenness, God gave him his reason back. He lifted his eyes to the Lord. God restored him to his former glory. And all he can do is thank the Lord for the amazing grace he showed. Right? That means the whole thing starts up here in human arrogance, goes down to the bottom of complete humility, abject humiliation, and then back up again to his former yet greater glory. What an amazing display of God humbling a man. And then after the turn and change of God exalting a man. I wonder where we've heard that before. Now, that's the story, okay? I, I just kind of spent the time talking about the story. Like, what, what, what is it supposed to do for you and what is it supposed to do for me in the 21st century? Now, some of it should be obvious. One thing it should do for us uh, is, is to remind us, and I know we talk a lot about this, but it's something different to really realize the truth of it in your heart, believe it, and see the world this way, is recognizing that God rules. I mean, you saw that word throughout, God rules, most high rules uh, over the kingdoms of men. Or, to give it a little bit longer um, definition, that it teaches us about our absolute dependence upon God's absolute rule. Absolute rule. This is one of those truths that A.W. Tozer would call a bedridden truth that lies dormant on the mind of the soul of the person and doesn't have any life, but possesses power beyond belief when you actually realize it. That God rules. The context in which that chapter 4 was written was a time and place when there was no visible demonstration of God's rule on earth. 
Picture it in your mind. Yahweh had, a, had decided and chosen the temple and Jerusalem and the place of Israel to be the vi- visible demonstration, the place of his reign. When King David was there and he took over the nations, that was a, that was a tangible, visible display of God's reign right on earth. And God was glorified. People say, David, how did he do this? Well, it was Yahweh doing this. That was a visible, tangible display of God's rule on earth. By the time Daniel writes, the temple's gone. Jerusalem is in um, ashes. And the people of Israel are scattered. The temple and the city and the people are gone. There is no visible manifestation of God's reign on earth. It's gone. I think the Jewish people would have thought, well, Yahweh left us. He, he's just, he was defeated by the other pantheon of pagan gods. Maybe he's disappeared. Maybe he didn't exist at all. There was no tangible demonstration of God's physical reign on earth. And this is God's way of saying you're wrong. You take the highest tree, the biggest tree, the biggest dude on, the, on campus, Nebuchadnezzar. I'm going to show you who rules. I'm going to take him to the ground. And that's what he does. It's to remind the Jewish people living at that time that I still rule. I always rule. I have never left the throne. That's his way of telling us in the 21st century, despite what we see, and despite the fact that we don't see a tangible physical demonstration of God's reign on earth, that he's still up there ruling. There are no mistakes, at least as far as God's concerned. On our part and our choices, yes, mistakes are made. But part of the peace that we have as believers in what the Bible declares is the simple fact that God does rule absolutely. And we are always 100% dependent upon his rule and his will. And that should bring us a sense of peace. When planes are dropping out of the sky and, and rockets are being launched at Jerusalem and there's ground invasions and there's, you know, things are going on in Russia. And it's just because you're like, wow, almost overwhelming. Our own cultural shifts. And it's those times, where does, a, where, does a, where does a believer find refuge? Right, you know? Where do we find our source of courage? Our calm, our rest. It's in the simple but powerful truth. God rules. It's never ended. That's, that's, that's the, like the main point. And even the people that we think are powerful in terms of the continuum of power, are absolutely nothing compared to the Most High. Two, and this is more to deal with our hearts, I think the passage teaches us that pride must be broken before grace will fall or grace will bless. Notice the pattern. There's arrogance, and God judged and brought him to a place of abject humiliation. And in that place of abject humiliation, this man repented. He realized that he was nothing without God, that he was completely and utterly dependent. Sanity was dependent upon the Most High. But then after the repentance, it's amazing how God graciously blesses and restores. Um, In one sense, you can say grace did all of it. Like grace is what brings us to a place. Sometimes it's through a word that God humbles us. Sometimes it's through humiliating circumstances. We've all had those happen. And everything just kind of comes apart. You look like a complete idiot. 
And you have to acknowledge, yeah, I screwed up. I was wrong. But what follows that also is so wonderful. When, when that pride is broken and, and, and God's grace is released in your life. And I've lived long enough to know and I've, I've known enough, enough of seasoned believers to know a, a simple truth. And that is when you're living in pride that the blessing of the Lord dries up in your life. It doesn't mean you're not saved. It just means that blessing dries up. The sense of his presence isn't there anymore. It's like he's far away. It's like you're living in a hollow cave and no one there. It's just like, God, where are you? There's no sensitivity to the spirit. There's no sensitivity to leading of the spirit. It's a place that's very, very lonely and dry. And it's usually a place produced by human pride. In some way, shape, or form, we've hardened ourselves to the spirit of God, to the word of God, um, to our own blindness. But boy, when, when God reveals it, and you, you come to that place where you're like, in, like in your heart, you're actually, it's so hard to describe what happens in the heart, you know, but where you actually feel like a sense of release and brokenness. You know what I'm talking about? It's like you come to that place. It's not, it's not forced. It's not coerced. It's not something you can contrive. It's, it's, it's when your heart really comes to the end of itself, and at the same time, you're convinced that God's doing it. He loves you, and he breaks the heart, and you're saying, you're right, I'm wrong. You rule, I don't, and I just simply we want to be back with you. That is what happens when pride breaks and where that worship gush comes from is when he breaks that. When he breaks that, on the other side, there is, there's so much. And I, 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 I wonder if the Lord is speaking to people here who have a, a hardened sense of heart somewhere um, of pride and arrogance. Maybe don't even see it yet, or maybe you do. Maybe it's a judgmental spirit that you've been carrying around with you where you're, you devalue other people in your mind because you don't think they're as righteous as you. That is something that is going to keep the freshness of God's grace just coming alive in your heart because it's a place of pride. Um, maybe it's a spirit of unholy discontent where you believe that the cards that God dealt you in your life um, aren't the ones you deserve. And you believe he owes you something. A better body, a better looking face, more popularity, more money, a better job, a higher paying job. No sickness. And you're a little bit angry at the Lord because he's dealt you those cards and you've created a sense of, of angry discontent. Because you think you deserve more from him. And that too is a place of hardness against the Lord. A place of pride. Or maybe you're just kind of living in hidden compromise. Maybe not an overt sin, but hidden compromise where you're living your life for you. Meanwhile, pretending to be a Christian. I don't know. What I want to say, and this is the hope, is that, you know, when, when we come to that place and humble ourselves before the Lord, or even ask him to break us. And he does. It's like the doors open and the sun shines again. And you can breathe the fresh air. And God's presence is renewed in your life. And the world is a place where you can experience shalom. Because you've been brought back in proper place where God is God and you're a child. Not proud and arrogant saying, look what I've done but soft, knowing he rules. 
And more than anything, we want his blessing. And that comes only through the lesson of humility. Maybe some of you are being broken by circumstances, or maybe God will be gracious to you and break you through words like this. And we'll come this morning to a place where God gives us the heart to look up again, um, not with self-righteousness, but with a sense of, God, you're good, and apart from your grace, I'm nothing. That speaks to me. Let me just finish with this, because I, you know, I've got to talk about Jesus. Um, do you remember in the very middle, I said I'm going to come back to this, one of the angelic watchers said that the Most High rules over the kingdom of men and gives it to whoever he wills to the lowliest of men. That to me was a, a prophetic moment because that's exactly what heaven did. The lowliest of men. Son of a carpenter from a village that was obscure and many considered to be disreputable. Nazareth. God called forth his king and has given him a place like no other. And his reign and his dominion is eternal dominion. And you know, I was even thinking about the pattern of Nebuchadnezzar's height and pride, humiliation and exaltation, I realized, you know, that's a pretty important pattern in Scripture you find all over the place. Descent, down, humiliation, and exaltation. And I think that's a pattern intended to point us in the direction of, of that lowly king, only with a powerful difference. Nebuchadnezzar was forced into humiliation. The Son of God chose to be humiliated. Jesus chose, though he was in the form of God, to humble himself, come down, take the form of a servant of a man, and die on a cross like a naked criminal in the dust, but always surrendered and always humbled. And what did God do to the one willingly humbling himself, humiliated on our behalf so that we could be accepted into his kingdom, not obliterated by his kingdom, and then raised him up and exalted him to the highest place. That's the heart of the most high. The most high becoming the most low to bring those who trusted him back to the most high. And that too is humbling of heart. That's the heart of God. That's the heart of Yahweh. That is the heart of the most high. So let me plead with you as God's people, you're God's children, you're, you're beloved of him. And I, I know he wants, desires to release fresh grace in your life and to renew his presence in your heart. Your pride is going to get in the way. So if there's a hardness that you have been holding on to, I just want to plead with you on behalf and in the spirit to relinquish it this morning. Let the Lord break you of that. Let him have his way with your heart. Confess it to him and say, Lord, I need this broken in my life because I want you more than I want this stuff in my life, my self-righteousness, my attitude, or my discontent. I want you. Will you take a, a second and just go before the Lord if there's something you need to deal with him about? And I know I want to be a person who's filled with the grace of God, and I know you do too.
And this is the way to do it, through humility, humility, not through pride.